good. I'm tired after jumping around in that worship set. I'm just going to call an altar call. I'm going to sleep. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, it's so good to be here this morning. If you're new, thanks for being here. I hope you feel welcomed and loved and that you encounter God today. We pray every week that God would touch each and every heart that comes in this room. And I pray that that would happen for you today. And I just want to encourage you, if you are new, to join us for Activate. You know, Activate is an incredible opportunity to learn more about the DNA of our church and to also really get some, some practical tools to help you in following Jesus. I think it's helpful for someone who's been following Jesus uh, for just a day and helpful for someone who's been following Jesus uh, for the whole or for their entire lives. So I think it's helpful for everybody. So I just want to encourage you to jump in. You're really going to get to see the heart of our church by, by joining us for that. And plus, we're getting pizza, so you get free pizza, so party on for that. Not every week. We'll do different things every week, but this week is pizza, so join us for that. And today we're going to continue our Gospel of Mark sermon series. We're in part 46, and I, I did the math. We're going to have 60 parts by the time we're done. So we're getting close, right? Only 14 weeks left, so praise the Lord for that. Uh, we'll take a break at Christmas time for a Christmas series called Promises, so talking about the promises of God. In January, we'll do a prayer series, and then we'll weave back in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll land it on Easter Sunday. So I'm excited for the next few months in our church. But just for some background, so we're in chapter 12, verse 35. In chapter 11, I've said this many times, but just to refresh your memory, Jesus, he arrived in Jerusalem, and the first thing he did was clear the temple. He was... He was pronouncing judgment on the temple because the temple was supposed to connect people to God, but it, it had actually been separating people from God, and that provoked Jesus' spirit. And then after that, it, just over the last few weeks of our series, we've been looking at these different controversies, these different arguments he's had with different religious leaders, because the religious leaders were frustrated about him judging the temple, and they came to question him and to try to trap him into saying something that could get him killed. So Jesus has or has weaved his way through all of these arguments, and now he's teaching the crowds. Okay, so let's uh, take a look in verse 35. It says this, And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, or declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly, and in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and at the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow who's put in more than all those, or has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. All right, the sermon title is True Generosity. Let's pray over it this morning. So Jesus, we thank you so much uh, for your love. God, we thank you for your generosity towards us and giving your only son Jesus to uh, die on the cross for our sins. And God, I pray today that that love would move us to be a truly generous people. Lord, speak to us through this text. Bring the text to life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so things have been kind of crazy around the Quimby household. If you didn't know, we have a four-year-old named Jane, a two-year-old named Abram, who's right in the middle of the terrible twos. Like, he is, he's having a good time, all right? He's getting angry a lot. And then we have a, almost seven months old, 
They're seven-month-old named Caleb, and actually Caleb's our easiest child. Like, he's been so easy, he just wakes up smiling. He cries like once every two weeks, and he's very, very chill. So praise the Lord for Caleb. He knew we needed that. But Jane and Abram, they, you know, they have their moments, and it's tough. Especially, you know, one thing that's been, been challenging lately is is sharing toys, okay? So Jane probably struggles with this more than Abram, and, and whenever Abram touches one of her toys, she starts to throw a fit. And we're trying to teach her the importance of sharing, but it seems like lately that Abram's been struggling with sharing too. You know, he got this Lightning McQueen car from McDonald's. It's like the best McDonald's toy that's ever been made because he loves it so much more than any other toy he has. And whenever Jane tries to touch that toy, he rages, like anger, it's scary. He doesn't get mad about really anything else, but, but with Lightning McQueen, ka-chow, he don't touch his toy, okay? So, uh, so once in a blue moon, though, Jane will share something with Abram, and when she does, she is so proud of herself. She's like, look at me, I shared. And it's usually like a broken toy or something she doesn't want, you know, something she finds like behind the couch that she doesn't want, she's like, here, Abram, there you go. And then she looks at me for approval, I'm like, Good job. You know, I'm trying to encourage her in it, but I also know that she's not really doing it out of a generous heart. Uh, she's just doing the easy thing. She's doing it to be seen by me. I can't help but think that, that Jane's sharing is kind of a reflection of how most of us share our, our resources. Oftentimes, we only give when it's easy, and we give extra money when we have it. We share encouraging words with people who we enjoy. Uh, we do favors for people who do favors for us, but we struggle to be generous when it's truly sacrificial. We won't give if it means we'll have to be without something. Okay, when's the last time you gave and it meant you had to be without something? Or we struggle to share encouraging words with people we don't particularly enjoy. And we struggle to do favors for people who don't do anything for us. And not just that, but, but when we do give, we often give for selfish reasons. We often want to be seen by others, or even just feel good about ourselves. We're generous and loving when there's something in it for us, but not when there's nothing at all to gain from it. I know I struggle with this, so no one's throwing stones at you this morning, okay? I've been getting wrecked by this message all week long. It took me eight hours to finish it yesterday when it was supposed to take an hour, okay? I was here at the church slaving away on this bad boy because it has been convicting me as well, okay? So the lesson that I want Jane to learn is actually a lesson that I need to learn myself. I want to learn to give my best. I want to give when nobody's looking and when there's nothing in it for me. And I believe many of you want this as well. Deep in your spirit, you want to be generous. You want to be a generous person. You want to have a truly giving heart. You want to follow Jesus down his road of sacrifice and service. But it's hard to be generous. It can be hard uh, to give our resources, whether that be time, talent, treasure, it could be anything, but it's hard to do that. And when we do give, it's hard to not have a hidden selfish motive. It's hard to not have a false generosity. Jeremiah said that the human heart is deceitful above all else. Deceit and hidden motives is just part of the human condition. In order to have a truly generous heart, we need God to do like surgery on us. We need a supernatural work to happen in our hearts because it's not natural. Okay, so the religious, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they thought that Jesus had hidden, or hidden motives as well. He claimed to do things that only God could do, and he was bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, but the religious leaders thought that he was not who he appeared to be. They thought he was working for the devil. We saw that back in Mark 3, and they thought he was a blasphemer, because men weren't 
or men weren't supposed to be able to do the things that that were reserved for God. Uh, They weren't supposed to be able to forgive sins and judge the temple, but Jesus was claiming to be able to do these things. So they were suspicious of him. And it's because of this suspicion that they spent the last two chapters trying to trap Jesus into saying something that could get him killed. And Jesus in his brilliance, he passed all their tests. And again, the last few weeks we took a look at those tests. But now in our passage today, he tries to show them how he could do things that only God could do by pointing out something very interesting from Psalm 110. Okay, so before we look at Psalm 110, it's important to understand that the Israelites, they expected a descendant of King David, who was like the best king in the Old Testament. They expected a descendant of King David uh, to rescue them from the grips of Rome and set up an earthly kingdom. And this expected descendant came to be known as the Messiah or the Christ of the same word, And that means anointed one, okay? So they're expecting a descendant of King David to be this anointed one. And by Jesus' day, Psalm 110 was viewed as a psalm about the Messiah. And and this is the psalm that Jesus quotes from in verse 36. Let's look at it again. And I put some things in parentheses there. So David said, or David himself and the Holy Spirit declared the Lord, he's referring to God, said to my Lord, he's referring to Messiah, sit at my right hand, until I put your enemies under your feet. Okay, so again, the first Lord is God, the second Lord is Messiah. Okay, so the, first, or the second Lord is David's son. Okay, so Jesus asked, how could David call his own descendant his Messiah? How could he call him his Lord? How is this possible? Well, if the Messiah was an earthly king, or simply an earthly king in the line of King David, it would be inappropriate for David to call him Lord, right? That wouldn't make sense. It's his son. Why would he call his own son Lord? But Jesus is making the point that David was able to call him Lord because uh, the Messiah is more than just an earthly king sent to do earthly things like take down Rome. The Messiah is far more than just an earthly deliverer. He is not just David's son, but he's God's son. He's divine. And at this point in the Gospel of Mark, uh, the readers know that Jesus is the Messiah. Mark has showed us that. Okay, so Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Son of God. He's not just David's son. He's the Son of God. He is a fulfillment of Psalm 110. He is a divine figure who will have lordship even over King David. Okay, so Jesus, he's not a blasphemer like they thought he was. He's the Son of God. He's not a blasphemer. He's the Son of God. Jesus was able to clear the temple. He was able to forgive sins because he is God himself. It's his right to do so. He has the right to do those things. Jesus is desperately wanting them to see that there's more to him than what they can see with their eyes. He is what they've been waiting for. Okay, so as N.T. Wright, this brilliant theologian says, he says that Jesus is the living embodiment of Israel's God. He's the living embodiment of Israel's God. He is what they've been waiting for, and they're trying to kill him. Okay, so following this, Jesus shows that, or that while he is more than what they thought he was, the scribes are actually less than they appeared to be. Okay, so let's look at the next few verses in 38. It says, and in his teaching, he said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like uh, the greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts to devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Okay, so the scribes, they totally look the part, right? They have the cool robe on. It's like flowing behind them, right? And they're set apart from the common people. They get the best seats in the synagogue, which I'm just telling you, these are not the best seats. You get spit on right here. Okay, so you don't want to be up here. It's way too close for comfort, right? But, uh, but they get the best seats in the synagogue. They make these long, impressive prayers, like Father God, da-da-da, Father God, and, you know, those long prayers. 
They, like they are, are looking the part, but they were spiritually bankrupt on the inside. Okay, they used their authority to get, or to get money out of widows, right? How low do you have to be to do that? And Jesus refers to this as devouring widows' houses. Okay, so they looked beautiful on the inside, but they were dead on the inside. That's what Jesus says of them in Matthew's gospel in chapter 23. Okay, so the scribes, they were not close to God, but they were condemned and spiritually dead. They seemed like they had it all together on the outside, but they were filthy on the inside. Okay, so after telling the scribes or the crowds that he's more than they thought he was, and the scribes are actually less than they thought they were, he now points to a, a woman who was also more than she appeared to be. Okay, verse 41 through 44. It says he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. And many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Okay, a whole penny. Wow, that's a lot of money, right? And especially in this economy, it's just going a long way. Anyways, and he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had. She put in all that she had to live on. Okay, so after teaching the crowds, Jesus observes the crowd as they put their money in the temple offering box. And one of the most important functions of the temple was to collect and manage large amounts of money to pay for the sacrifices and the expenses of the temple. And people would throw in large amounts, you know, people who had actually, you know, throw in those large amounts, you know, it's similar to how like a local church works today, right? We collect an offering, people throw in money, all that stuff. As this is happening, a poor widow throws in two small copper coins, which is an abysmal amount of money. It's like the smallest currency in circulation. And while it looked like she was giving a small offering, she actually gave more than all the others because she gave everything she had. Okay, so the, her gift was not insignificant. It was actually radically generous, even though it was only a penny. This woman and her seemingly small offering is actually setting an example for what it looks like to be generous. She was setting the standard for what true generosity is. Okay, so true generosity is not just giving extra money when you have it. It's not giving because you get something out of it. It's not giving uh, just when you feel inspired or giving when you feel fulfilled. True generosity is giving when it hurts. True generosity is giving when no one sees it and you get nothing out of it. True generosity is following the example of Jesus who held nothing back for us. True generosity is actually not about how much you give, but it's about how much you keep for yourself. Okay, think about that, right? She gave everything she had. It's not about how much you give. It's not about that dollar amount. It's about how much you keep back for yourself. It's not wrong to keep money for yourself, right? Like, like you have to pay your bills, and, and that's between you and the Lord on how much you keep back for yourself. But, but this woman, what she is, is she's a prototype, right? She's like the, the standard for what true generosity is. If anyone could keep money for herself, it was surely this woman. She could have been more calculated in her giving, she could have kept one coin for herself. Wouldn't that be fair if she kept one coin back for herself? That would be reasonable, right? To a reasonable American, we'd say, yes, keep one coin for yourself. Don't give both. We'd probably tell her not to give both. We'd be like, oh, no, no, keep that one back for yourself. But she wanted to give it all. She didn't want to just give 50%. She wanted to give 100%. She gave God everything she had, and yet we often struggle with 10%. 
It's hard for us to do that. It's hard for us to give 10%. It's probably one of the, the biggest obstacles I've noticed in my two years of pastoring. It's just really hard for people to give their money to God. It's really hard. It's probably the most difficult point of, of obedience for most people. And we live in the most affluent society in history, right? And it's so difficult for us. Okay, so the common thread to the section about the Messiah, the scribes, and this widow is that things are not always as they appear. Okay, we often fail to see things like God sees them. And we look at things through an earthly perspective while he has a heavenly one. We often fail to see things as God sees them. Jesus was not a false teacher. He was not a blasphemer. He was not even just an earthly Messiah who was David's son. He was actually the fulfillment of Psalm 110. He was both David and God's son. The scribes were not who they presented themselves to be. They were spiritually dead. They were condemned. Things were not as they appeared. And this woman's gift was not a small offering. It was extravagant. It was the gold standard of what it looks like to be generous. As many of you know, we launched Kingdom Builders back in February of this year. And if you don't know what it is, Kingdom Builders is a way that our church gives above and beyond the tithe to things that God really cares about. Okay, so it consists of three things, global missions, local church expansion, and future Christian leaders. Our global, our global section goes to things like foreign missionaries, disaster relief, fighting human sex trafficking around the world, and feeding the poor around the world. And the local church expansion portion goes to things like outreach in the community. It goes to the Alternatives Pregnancy Center and church planting around the country. And the future leaders part goes to Chi Alpha and our youth ministry. Uh, specifically this weekend, we had fall conference in Des Moines. The future leaders part helped pay for part of that to make it cheaper for students. If you want more info on Kingdom Builders, get one of these packets. If you don't have one yet, we have plenty out there. The year's almost over. Grab it and see what we gave to this year. I really encourage you uh, to do that. At the, Back in February, the bold goal we set was $40,000, which was much more than we gave last year to missions. And I had, had no idea how we would reach this goal just based on our past giving. And throughout this year, the Lord has just utterly shocked me time and time again with the radical generosity of our people. And what's blown me away the most, get this, our largest single donations, probably like the top four donations have all come from college students. Like the really large one, multiple thousands of dollars have come from college students. Uh, the people who are likely making the least are giving the most. It's pretty crazy. When we launched Kingdom Builders, I believed that God was going to bring in the funds, but I had no idea how he was going to do it. And he's ended up doing it through people who you would just never expect, just as he did with the poor widow in Mark chapter 12. As we consider, or not consider, that's, that's, that's consider and widow mixed together. As we consider the widow's example of generosity today. You got to give me a break. I was jumping hard during worship and I was at the church all day yesterday. Okay? So if we, as we consider her example, let me ask you this question. All right. And there's no shame being heaped, but are you truly generous? Are you generous at heart? Like, do you give sacrificially? Do you give even when no one notices and when you get nothing out of it? Do you give even when it hurts? Or are you falsely generous in the way that Jane is? You know, when Jane gets to be about eight, we decided last night when she gets to be eight, I'll stop, you know, using her as examples for everything. But, you know, she's still four, so we're going to use her. So do you struggle or are you uh, falsely generous like she is? Do you just give your extras or what you don't need? Do you give to be seen by others or for the joy it brings you? I would venture to guess that I think most of us are probably not like this widow. And I would even put myself in there. I know I'm not where I need to be yet. 
I'm too calculated with the way I give my time. The Lord's really been rebuking me about my time lately, but, but time and money. I, I, I do the tithe. I give above me. I'm so calculated. I don't leave a lot of room for uh, the Lord to push me to do extra. And this has just penetrated my heart this week. I, I want us to be a generous church, and I believe we're getting there, but I know it has to start with me, you know, so I'm feeling convicted, and I know we have so much further to go. Like $40,000, that's amazing, but God could do way more if we would all, you know, really step into or to what the widow is uh, showing us here. I'm a fellow traveler with you on this road to greater generosity. I really believe we're in this together, okay? So if you're not generous like this widow, I think the question is how do you become generous like she is? That's the million-dollar question this morning. And sadly, this passage does not answer this question. And that's why I was here all day yesterday. I was like, come on, I want to get this answer out of this passage. But there's two other texts that hit this really well. And I, I want to briefly, or briefly look at them. They tell us three things that can help us become generous. Okay, so the first thing is in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. It says, and this is Jesus. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, so Jesus, he calls us not to store up treasures on earth, but to store up treasures in heaven, because where we put our treasure is where our hearts will go. Our hearts follow our treasure. In other words, when we use our resources on things that God cares about, our heart will care about the things that God cares about. Our hearts follow our treasures, and we need to be very intentional about this. For example, if you put your money into a stock, you better believe you're going to watch that stock. You're going to be invested in how it performs. Or if you buy a new car, you're going to want to take good care of that car. Our hearts tend to follow where we put our treasure. If you want to become a truly generous person, it starts with the decision to put your treasure in the right place. It starts with a decision to invest in the things that God cares about, and as you do this, your heart will follow. So the first thing, if we want to be generous, we must make a decision to put our treasure in the right place. If you wait till you feel like it, you're probably going to be waiting your whole life. Okay, the human heart is deceitful and greedy. Let's just call it out. It is greedy. It is selfish. And while our willpowers can't make us truly generous, we can use our willpowers to help start the process. We can make a decision and say, I'm going to obey Jesus even if I don't feel like it. Okay, here's the thing. We don't obey to earn anything from God, but we do obey as an act of love towards God, okay? We obey as an act of love. So, or so love is more of an action than a feeling. If you love Jesus, then make the decision to start investing in the things that he cares about. Start investing in heavenly things. Don't wait to obey God until you feel like obeying God, right? That's, that's a crummy way to live. Feelings are a crummy master, right? If we followed our feelings everywhere they took us, we would be some really unhealthy human beings, Obey God and trust that he will change your heart as you do. At the beginning of this year, I started making a healthy smoothie for breakfast. Okay, I wanted to trim a little bit of the chub off my belly. And at first, I did not enjoy it, right? I'm like, I haven't had a banana. Well, I, I like bananas, but I hadn't had spinach really ever. Okay, so I'm like, you know, I didn't enjoy it a whole lot. It's a lot of work, and it doesn't taste that good. It's, it's much easier just to pick up a muffin from Panera, which is what I was doing like a lot last year, so pray for me. <laughs> It was bad. It'd be like egg and sausage sandwich on Monday, Wednesday, Friday, muffin on Tuesday, Thursday, McDonald's breakfast on Saturday. I mean, it's not good. I love breakfast. But now after doing this for about a year and seeing how much healthier I am, right, my doctor even noticed, he's like, oh, look, your, your stuff's you know, better than it was before. 
and seeing how much energy I have, I actually prefer the smoothie. Like I wake up with this desire to eat it. Like I'm hungry for it. It seems that my feelings have followed my actions. Okay, so desire often follows our discipline. We got to use discipline to get started and then the uh, desires will come afterwards. As we decide to be generous and obedient to Jesus, the feelings will follow. Put your treasure in heavenly things and watch your heart care about those things more. Okay, the second thing is right here in this passage. It's about to get good in here. Okay, it's it's verse 24. (laughs) Okay, so no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Ooh, okay, it's about to get going. Okay, so Jesus, he tells us that that we can only have one master. We can't serve both God and money. Okay, that, or the word here for money is actually an Aramaic word called mammon. It's wealth personified. It essentially means riches. Okay, so mammon was actually a false god that the Assyrians worshipped. And Jesus is referring to a false god that uh, the Israelites would have known of. It's an actual spirit that grips the human heart. And mammon's still alive today. Mammon is the only idol or spirit that Jesus explicitly sets up against God as a competitor. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon. You're going to love one and hate the other. The spirit of mammon is the opposite of the spirit of God. The spirit of mammon says to take. God says to give. The spirit of mammon says to be selfish. God says to be generous. Mammon talks to us all the time. It tells us if we just had more money than or then we would have the lives that we dreamed of. It's a seductive spirit. It rules the lives of so many people. It promises to be the answer to all of our problems. It promises to make us self-sufficient and give us things that only God can give us, like security and significance, freedom and power. It wants us to trust it instead of God. And many of us, we grew up looking to mammon as our God, and we didn't even know it. Mammon is not neutral. It's a serious threat to those who follow Jesus Christ. And Jesus is adamant about warning us of its power. Okay, don't get me wrong. Money and mammon are not the same thing. Okay, so, or so money is not inherently evil. Okay, so money that's submitted to God can be an incredible tool for the kingdom of God. Money helps us clothe ourselves and have shelter, all those things. Money is not bad in and of itself. And money that's submitted to God has God's spirit on it, but then money that's not submitted to God has the spirit of mammon on it. And if you want more about mammon, just check out this book. We give this book to you in step one of Activate. I preached on this book back in February, and you can have this book. We have some copies. If you want one, just tell me. But there's more about that in there. But the point is, money is not the problem. Love of money is. Trust in money is. If you want to get generous, we have to get free of the spirit of mammon. We have to get free of the love of money. 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and have pierced themselves with many griefs. If you love money and allow mammon to be your master, you will wander from the faith and pierce yourself with many griefs. If we want to become generous, we got to get free. Right? We need deliverance from this master. And we have to ask Jesus to be our master. I really think this takes like genuine deliverance to get free of this spirit. I believe the spirit is on so many people. It's a very real spiritual battle. We must repent and ask Jesus to set us free. We must ask him for deliverance. You must reject mammon as your master 
and ask Jesus Christ to be your master. If we want to be generous, we must get free of mammon and be mastered by Jesus. When the spirit of mammon gets off our life and we become mastered by Jesus, we'll be set free from hoarding. Hoarding is not good, right? Starting to store up all this stuff for yourself to feel secure and safe, that's not good. And we'll be set free from from worry, right? Like worrying about tomorrow, worrying about if we have enough. We'll be set free from greed, just wanting more and more and more stuff. And we'll become more open-handed and ready to share with others. We'll be able to put our money in its proper place and do whatever Jesus tells us to do with it. And we won't be subservient to mammon, which tells us we need to be self-sufficient and that money is what we need to be fulfilled. But instead, we'll be able to rest in the loving arms of Jesus Christ. If we want to be generous, we've got to make a decision, but we also got to get free and become mastered by Jesus. But there's one more thing. It's in 2 Corinthians 8. And Paul here, he's imploring the church. He's asking them to give sacrificially to kingdom builders. No, it's, it's uh, to missionaries, okay? So similar. And he needs the churches to get behind the mission. And it says this, so he pleads with them to give, and then he says this in verse 7 through 9. He says, but as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, and knowledge, and earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace, referring to giving. He's talking about giving here. Also, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness, the earnestness of others that, you are, that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Okay, so Paul calls them, don't just excel in faith. Don't just excel in speech or in knowledge or in earnestness or love, but also in giving. Okay, so don't get mad at me when I preach on giving. I'm supposed to. Paul wants us to excel in it. Okay, giving is right up there with these other virtues. However, it's interesting. He's not giving it as a command. And I sense that tension as a preacher myself. I don't want to twist your arm to give, right? This is awkward for all of us. Nobody wants that. No one's twisting your arm. Paul's not trying to twist your arm. But what he does say is he says that if you don't give, or he says that your giving proves that your love is genuine, right? He says, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Okay, so the point is, if you're not generous, I don't know if your love is genuine. Or you're not giving to earn anything. You're not giving because someone twisted your arm. But, but giving, generosity, should be a natural response to the love of God. It shows the genuineness of our hearts. It's hard, if not impossible, to be a true disciple of Jesus and not be generous. Okay, Paul, though, here, he shows us in verse 9 how we can be motivated to give. And this is the important part, the most important part, I think, of anything I say today. He says that though Jesus was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In other words, Jesus gave up the riches of heaven and took on our poverty so that we might be saved. If we want to be generous, we must allow the love of Jesus to get in and to change us. We must be utterly undone by what he has done for us. If we want to be generous, we must be moved by Jesus's generosity. He's the initiator, right? No one's asking you to prove something to God this morning. Encounter his love and respond to that love by being generous in the way that he asks you to be. 1 John 4.19 tells us that we love because he first loved us. Or first loved us. If we want to be generous, we must not only make a decision, and we must not only ask Jesus to be our master, not money, but we also have to be moved by Jesus' love towards this. Obligation is a crummy motivator. Obligation is a crummy motivator. 
But love can motivate us to do just about anything. Some real crazy, crazy things. When I see my time hop from 2011, when I started dating Emily, I'm like, who's that weirdo? Like, I have the most beautiful girlfriend in the entire world. We're going to get married. We love each other. I was going to say something stupid. All right, you stop. <laughs> say, all right, no, I can do it. I'll tell you afterwards. But uh, this is on camera. But anyways, the point is, <laughs> the point is, just don't go back. If you go back on my Facebook in 2011, you're excommunicated from our church. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Don't go back, though. If you want to laugh, you can go back. I'm playing. But uh, so anyways, I don't know where the heck I am. Point is, love motivates you to do some weird things. <laughs> If we're moved by the, or by the love of Jesus, we'll want to be sacrificial, right? Like, this, like that song that we're singing, I'm like, yeah, Jesus, take it all. That's how I'm feeling in that moment because I'm encountering his love. I'm like, yes, take everything I have. I want to give it to you. If we love Jesus, we'll want to pour it out. We won't be able to help it but be generous. Okay, with this in mind, we need to make a decision, and then we need to be mastered by Jesus, and we need to be moved by Jesus' love. Okay, so it worked out really well that this text happened to fall on this week because I get the privilege to share with you about an exciting Kingdom Builders project, right? Just weird the timing of this is the Gospel of Mark, part 46, and the stars aligned for this to happen as this project came together in the last week, and now I can present it to you just on this week, so it just works out great. As most of you know, we already reached our $40,000 goal, I said that, but after we reached the goal, I began to pray and ask the Lord if he would have us do a special project at the end of the year. I'm like, I don't want to just be generous between January and September. We got to do something else. And because generosity is at the heart of our church, and we don't want to just be generous to reach our goals, but to keep being generous. And it took about a month to pray on it. I had some different ideas, just praying on it. And in the meantime, we began this process of converting this house over here. It's on the corner. You see it. We're converting this house from a rental house to a ministry center. Okay, we began this process actually back in August. And over this last year, we've grown pretty dramatically as a church. You see how full the room is right now, right? Like, like God is moving. It's, it's incredible. And, and we've needed more space for ministry. And specifically, we've needed space to be able to have all of our ministries on Wednesday nights. As we have kids, youth, and adults that all meet here, and we only have space for two of those groups in this building here. Okay, so last spring, we actually wanted to have one of our communities here at the church because all of our communities had dogs or cats, and we had some people with allergies, and we couldn't have it here because there's no space. The kids were there, and the youth were in here. And, I, and also, when we go back to two services, which might be soon, uh, we want to run adult discipleship classes like Activate during one of our services. So it'd be like, you know, you might come to the 9 a.m. service and then go over to the ministry center and do the class during the second service. And that's just a way to not keep people here all day. Uh, and also, I'll just throw another thing in there. We want to start having a time of prayer with some intercessors before service. And again, you got the worship team in here, you got the kids workers back there, and they can pray over there at the house. So there's lots of different things we want to do over there. Um, and at the same time as all, as all of this, we have had an increased desire to have offices because people usually want to be able to stop by and talk with me or the team during the week. And we've all been all over the place, Panera Bread, my bedroom, you know, <laughs> hiding from my kids, you know, wherever. So we wanted to have offices. So these are all things that have happened. And our solution was to convert the house into a ministry center, which was really a step of faith because we we're getting some income from that. And in the house, there's space for small groups up in the up in the living room. It's, it's a really nice space. There's a classroom setting downstairs, a big room that's a classroom. And then there's four offices. Two of the office spaces are currently unfinished, the ones in the basement, but we're hoping to add to our team and to 
and to utilize those in the next year. As we moved in, we've spent quite a bit of money updating and purchasing some things like the roof needed replaced, which that was partially because of hail damage, but that, but that needed replaced. We had to replace the water heater, we had to buy furniture, paint, just all those kind of small things. And we still have some big needs left, including, including but not limited to replacing all the windows. They are ancient. You can just look at them from the outside. You'll be able to tell. And to finish the two basement offices so we can use those and to update the lighting. We got some sweet track lighting. There's like red and blue lights. And it's like, it's anyways, I'm just being stupid. So the point is we need to do some things to update it. And all these updates are going to make the house more conducive for fruitful ministry. And the heart behind the house is that it would be a place where discipleship happens. I kind of want to call it the discipleship house, but I feel like that sounds weird. So we're going to go with ministry center. But, but the heart of the ministry center is for it to be a place where one-on-one meetings happen, small groups happen, prayer meetings happen. It's a place for discipleship. And again, we're calling it the Sent ministry center. And after much prayer, I, I just really sense that the Lord wanted us to make the center our last kingdom builder project of the year as part of our local church expansion fund, that, or part of that's to expand our campus. So what we need to do the things I mentioned is $18,000 here at the end of the year to raise those funds. And all giving to kingdom builders from now to the end of the year will help us do this. And I invite you today to give to that, right? Again, this sermon lined up with uh, me announcing this project. I'm not trying to twist your arm. I'm not trying to do any of that. But I want to encourage you to pray and see how God might want you to give. And I encourage you to give sooner rather than later because we do want to do these updates as soon as possible with the winter coming. As we talk about the poor widow today and what true generosity is, I can't think of a better way for our church to come together and and make something really great happen that's going to be a blessing to our church. We want to steward every square inch of our property for kingdom purposes and kingdom impact. That's what we want to do. We want to want to really utilize what God has given us. If he can't trust us with a little to take care of what we have, how is he going to give us more, right? So that's my heart. And I just want to ask you to pray and help make this possible by stretching and giving above and beyond what you think is possible. This is an incredible opportunity to be generous. A couple of years ago, one of our partner churches, Cross Point Church in Waverly, had a similar journey they went on at the end of the year. Pastor Jonathan there is actually on our board. He's been kind of helping me with this project, and he wanted to share the story of what God did through them. So we're going to just show a video here quick. Hey, good morning, St. Church. I love to hear what God is doing through you and in you here at your church. And I love your pastors. Pastor Daniel and Emily are just a fantastic couple. So appreciate all that they're doing. Pastor Daniel asked me to share a story from our church. In 2019, we uh, asked our congregation, we were looking at expanding our offices, and it was the final kind of construction project for us at our church in in Waverly. And we thought we'll raise $50,000 this year and then raise the balance in the following year. And I'll just tell you, I had a little faith, right? And so that's why we set the number at $50,000. And when I met with our leadership team and met with our staff, it was clear that $50,000 was not a large enough goal. And so the following Sunday, I had to say to our congregation, congregation, I'm so sorry. I didn't dream big enough. I thought that $50,000 was a, a big dream, but it wasn't near enough. And, uh, and, and so I said, you know what? The offices are going to cost $90,000 between now and the end of the year. Let's go ahead and believe God to bring in the funds for that. And let's do this. And so a couple of weeks went by and we got really close. We're at $83,000 of the 90. That Sunday morning, I stood up and, and I said to our church, hey, we're really close. All we have left is $7,000. In fact, maybe there's somebody here this morning that just wants to write the balance of it and write a check for $7,000. 
The conclusion of the service, I was down in the lobby at the entrance of our building and, and a young couple walks by and this young lady says to me, she said, how much is left? I said, we've raised 83, we need $90,000, $7,000 is left. And she goes, huh? And so what do you do? I said, huh? Okay. Have a good week. <laughs> and she walked out the doors and I had no idea what that was about. That Monday she called me and I had looked to see if anything had come in for the building. And I felt like a failure as a pastor because I'm just telling you absolutely nothing came in that Sunday for the building. Not even one dime came in for the building. And so she called me and she said, what's the balance? And I said, I'll, I'll just tell you, nothing came in for the building yesterday. And she said over the phone, she said, back in, in, in November, I wrote in my journal, God spoke to me to give $7,000 to the church. And this is confirmation that this is what I'm supposed to do. I tell you, she wrote the check. She brought it by the church. We deposited it. It didn't bounce, right? That's a good thing. It didn't bounce. And, uh, and it was amazing to see the provision of God as we stepped out in faith. At the completion of the building, I brought her through the offices, she and her husband, and I gave them a tour of it. What I didn't know is in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke to her and said, one day these are going to be uh, your offices. A, a few months later, we were looking for a youth and college pastor. We interviewed her. And one of the things she said to me was that very story. And so I'm just telling you, we have no idea what God's going to do in moments like that. Now she's part of our team as the youth and college pastor, Pastor Madison Metcalf, and she's doing a phenomenal job. God has positioned you in such a strategic season right now. And today, I believe that God's going to perform a miracle for you. You guys are looking at expanding your ministry center. And today, Pastor Daniel's casting a very big vision for you as a church to raise these funds for that. And I just want to encourage you to step out in faith. Be obedient to what the Holy Spirit is asking you to do this day. Be cheerful as you give it. And come on, let's celebrate what God is going to do in the years to come through Scent Church. God bless you. Hey, good yeah. morning, Scent Church. I love to hear what's good. Yeah, Jonathan came here yesterday and filmed that. I stood on the, the chairs there. So the great camera work. Yeah, but anyway, so main idea this morning is this. Disciples of Jesus are truly generous. Disciples of Jesus are truly generous. As we consider the poor widow and how her example showed us what true generosity is, I want you to consider this question. How is Jesus asking you to grow in your generosity? If generosity is not just giving when you have extra or giving to feel good, how can you grow in this area? Do you need to start by being faithful with the tithe? Right, we talked about that a bit. Tithing, I don't really believe tithing is, is actually generosity. And it's simply giving back to God what is already His, right? It's already His in the first place. But this is the foundation. If you're not tithing, it's really impossible to be truly generous. Start by setting aside 10% of each paycheck at the beginning and give it to the local church so that the mission can go forward. Don't wait till you feel like it. I would encourage you to be bold today and set up a reoccurring donation if you haven't yet and make a commitment. Say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put my treasure in the things that God cares about the most. Or do you need to start giving above and beyond to Kingdom Builders? Kingdom Builder helps us fund so many different causes. And maybe today you need to say, hey, I'm going to start giving disciplined to Kingdom Builders. I'm going to start giving monthly or weekly to this to help fund the projects we support. Or maybe God is calling you to help us renovate the ministry center for us to reach 
our $18,000 goal, we're going to need to stretch a bit to get there. Just based on our past giving, we're going to need to stretch to make this happen. So how can God use you to help make this happen? Or maybe you need to be more generous with your time. Uh, Maybe you've been stingy with your time. And the Lord, as I said earlier, he's been convicting me of this. I schedule my week out so religiously that it's hard for me to have any interruptions. And I'm trying myself to free up my week so I can be more generous with my time. You know, Jesus, he allowed himself to be interrupted. And I believe we should, too, ask the Lord how you could give up your time to honor him and to serve people. Or maybe you need to start being generous in your service, right? You need to start serving other people, whether that be through helping a friend or doing favors or serving on the dream team at the church. Our church can't be all that God has called it to be without each person playing his or her part. There's only one you, and we need you to play your part. How is Jesus asking you to stretch in your generosity this holiday season? As you consider that, remember that generosity, it starts with the decision. Feelings will follow the actions, but also remember Remember that it's only sustainable if you're truly mastered by Jesus and moved by his love. Do you need to get free of the spirit of mammon today? I really like sense strongly that that God wants to get some people free of that spirit today. Or do you need to repent for loving money? Do you need Jesus' love to move you today? If you're not in right relationship with Jesus, do you need to come into relationship with him today? The whole reason why we're generous is because Jesus was generous first. While we were sinful and separated from God, he left the riches of heaven to redeem us. On the cross, Jesus performed the most radical act of generosity in world history. He paid for our sin. He took our place. And in return, he gave us his righteousness. It makes no sense, right? It doesn't make sense from an earthly perspective. If you trust in Jesus, you can be forgiven and receive Christ's perfect life. And when God looks at you, he won't see your sin, but Christ's righteousness. Now, just that after three days of being dead, Jesus rose from the grave, showing us that eternal life is possible. If you trust in Jesus and make him your master, you can have eternal life. So if you haven't made that decision, I pray that you would today. Jesus is calling us to be a generous church, a truly generous church, not just a church that gives our extras, or gives when there's something in it for us, but a church that gives until it hurts, a church that doesn't try to keep a bunch for ourselves, but just loves to bless others. We're going on a generosity journey together, and as we do, I believe that Jesus is going to help us become a truly generous church that's for the one, for the city, and for the world. Go ahead and stand to your feet. We're going to respond to God. So when it comes to generosity, let's bring the lights down to you. I want to have just a moment here to respond to God, just between you and the Lord. So if you want to bow your heads and close your eyes, that'd be great just to make this a private moment between you and God. So so when it comes to generosity, I, I want to give you three ways to respond, and we'll do them all right in a row, and then we'll pray for everybody at once. But I kind of want to give you a chance to just respond to each of the things I talked about in terms of growing to generosity. They're growing in generosity. Okay, so the first thing is if you want to make a decision today, like you just need to make a decision to be generous, can you slip up your hand to heaven just telling the Lord, say, hey, I want to make a decision, start being generous with my time and my money and my resources. Okay, tons of hands going up. All right, you can keep your hands up. I'm going to keep going through this list. Uh, so the second thing is if you need to get free of the spirit of mammon or free of love of money, can, can you boldly slip up your hand right now to Jesus just saying, I need to get free? If you want to slip up both hands because you uh, raised your hand for the first question, that's fine too. Say, Jesus, I need to get free this morning of the love of money. I need to get free of worrying about money. I need to get free of letting it dictate my heart and my life and my decisions. And the last thing 
is you need to be moved by Jesus' love. You just need him to compel you to be generous. You can slip up a hand if you haven't yet. All right, let's pray. Jesus, right now, there's, there's people raising their hands to you, asking you to help them be generous, to help them make a decision, to help them be moved by your love and to be mastered by you and to be free of mammon. God, I pray that you would set hearts free all across this room. Lord, we say no to the spirit of mammon. We say no to the spirit of our age. We are going to be submitted to you, Jesus. We want you to be our master. We do not want to serve money. God, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. Can we give God praise? Come on, he's moving all across, and I believe it. I believe it. We're not going to be mastered by nothing. Right? We're not going to be mastered by anything in this world. I'm only going to be mastered by King Jesus, right? Nothing else. It doesn't matter if it's money or sex or food or anything. I'm not being mastered by anything other than Jesus Christ. He's the only one who deserves my heart. He's the only one that deserves your heart. Right? These other masters, they are crummy masters. The spirit of mammon has to go in the name of Jesus. So right now, if you want to respond to God, the altars are open. I encourage you to be bold, be courageous, and come forward to the altars to have a time with the Lord. The prayer team is also going to be up here. And let's make this last song a time to really respond to God and say, God, we want you to be our master. All right, go ahead and respond.